This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Canal by Everell Worrell. It's read by Wayne June. It runs 54 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Weird Audiobooks presents The Canal by Everell Worrell. Read by Wayne June. Past the sleeping city, the river sweeps. Along its left bank, the old canal creeps. I did not intend that to be poetry, although the scene is poetic. Somberly, gruesomely poetic, like the poems of Poe. Too well I know it. Too often have I walked over the grass-grown path, beside the reflections of black trees and tumble-down shacks and distant factory chimneys in the sluggish waters that moved so slowly and ceased to move at all. I shall be called mad, and I shall be a suicide. I shall take no pains to cover up my trail, or to hide the thing that I shall do. What will it matter afterward what they say of me? If they knew the truth, if they could vision, even dimly, the beings with whom I have consorted, if the faintest realization might be theirs of the thing I am becoming, and of the fate from which I am saving their city, then they would call me a great hero. But it does not matter what they call me, as I have said before. Let me write down the things I am about to write down, and let them be taken as they will be taken for the last ravings of a madman. The city will be in mourning for the thing I shall have done, but its mourning will be of no consequence beside that other fate from which I have saved it. I have always had a taste for nocturnal prowling. We as a race have grown too intelligent to take seriously any of the old instinctive fears that preserved us through preceding generations. Our sole remaining salvation, then, has come to be our tendency to travel in herds. We wander at night, but our objective is somewhere on the brightly lighted streets or still somewhere where men do not go alone. When we travel far afield, it is in company. Few of my acquaintance, few in the whole city here, would care to ramble at midnight over the grass-grown path I have spoken of, not because they would fear to do so, but because such things are not being done. Well, it is dangerous to differ individually from one's fellows. It is dangerous to wander from the beaten road, and the fears that guarded the race in the dawn of time and through the centuries were real fears, founded on reality. A month ago, I was a stranger here. I had just taken my first position. I was graduated from college only three months before, in the spring. I was lonely, and likely to remain so for some time, for I've always been of a solitary nature, making friends slowly. I had received one invitation out to visit the camp of a fellow employee in the firm for which I worked, a camp which was located on the farther side of the wide river, a side across from the city and the canal, 
where the bank was high and steep and heavily wooded, and little tents blossomed all along the water's edge. At night these camps were a string of sparkling lights and tiny leaping campfires, and the tinkle of music carried faintly far across the calmly flowing water. That far bank of the river was no place for an eccentric, solitary man to love, but near the bank, which would have been an eyesore to the campers had not the river been so wide, the near bank attracted me from my first glimpse of it. We embarked in a motorboat at some distance downstream and swept up along the near bank and then out and across the current. I turned my eyes backward. The murk of stagnant water that was the canal, the jumble of low buildings beyond it, the lonely, low-lying waste of the narrow strip of land between the canal and the river, the dark, scattered trees growing there. I intended to see more of these things. That weekend bored me, but I repaid myself no later than Monday evening, the first evening when I was back in the city, alone and free. I ate a solitary dinner immediately after leaving the office. I went to my room and slept from seven until nearly midnight. I wakened naturally then, for my whole heart was set on exploring the alluring solitude I had discovered. I dressed, slipped out of the house and into the street, started the motor in my roadster and drove through the lighted streets. I left behind that part of town which was thick with vehicles carrying people home from their evening engagements and began to thread my way through the darker and narrower streets. Once I had to back out of a cul-de-sac and once I had to detour around a closed block. This part of town was not alluring even to me. It was dismal without being solitary. But when I had parked my car on a rough cobbled street that ran directly down into the inky waters of the canal and crossed a narrow bridge, I was repaid. A few minutes set my feet on the old towpath where mules had drawn riverboats up and down only a year or so ago. Across the canal now, as I walked upstream at a swinging pace, the miserable shacks where miserable people lived seemed to march with me, and then fell behind. They looked like places in which murders might be committed, every one of them. The bridge I had crossed was near the end of the city, going north, as the canal marked its western extremity. Ten minutes of walking and the dismal shacks were quite a distance behind. The river was farther away and the strip of wasteland much wider and more wooded, and tall trees across the canal marched with me as the evil-looking houses had done before. Far and faint, the sound of a bell in the city reached my ears. It was midnight. I stopped, enjoying the desolation around me. It had the savor I had expected and hoped for. I stood for some time looking up at the sky, watching the low drift of heavy clouds which were visible in the dull reflected glow from the distant lights in the heart of the city, so that they appeared to have a lurid phosphorescence of their own. The ground under my feet, on the contrary, was utterly devoid of light. I had felt my way carefully, knowing the edge of the canal partly by instinct, partly by the even more perfect blackness of the water in it, and even holding fairly well to the path because it was perceptibly sunken below the ground beside it. Now as I stood motionless in this spot, my eyes upcast, my mind adrift with strange fancies, 
Suddenly my feelings of satisfaction and well-being gave way to something different. Fear was an emotion unknown to me, for those things which make men fear I had always loved. A graveyard at night was to me a charming place for a stroll and meditation. But now the roots of my hair seemed to move upright on my head, and along all the length of my spine I was conscious of a prickling, tingling sensation, such as my forefathers may have felt in the jungle when the hair on their backs stood up, as the hair of my head was doing now. Also, I was afraid to move, and I knew that there were eyes upon me, and that that was why I was afraid to move. I was afraid of those eyes, afraid to see them, to look into them. All this while I stood perfectly still, my face uptilted toward the sky. But after a terrible mental effort, I mastered myself. Slowly, slowly, with an attempt to propitiate the owner of the unseen eyes by my casual manner, I lowered my own. I looked straight ahead at the softly swaying silhouette of the treetops across the canal as they moved gently in the cool night wind at the mass of blackness that was those trees, and the opposite shore, at the shiny blackness where the reflections of the clouds glinted vaguely and disappeared. That was the canal. And again I raised my eyes a little, for just across the canal where the shadows massed most heavily, there was that at which I must look more closely. And now, as I grew accustomed to the greater blackness and my pupils expanded, I dimly discerned the contours of an old boat or barge half sunken in the water, an old abandoned canal boat. But was I dreaming, or was there a white-clad figure seated on the roof of a low cabin aft, a pale, heart-shaped face gleaming strangely at me from the darkness, the glow of two eyes seeming to light up the face and to detach it from the darkness? Surely there could be no doubt as to the eyes. They shone as the eyes of animals shine in the dark, with a phosphorescent gleam and a glimmer of red. Well, I had heard that some human eyes have that quality at night, but what a place for a human being to be. A girl, too, I was sure. The daintily heart-shaped face was the face of a girl, surely. I was seeing it clearer and clearer, either because my eyes were growing more accustomed to peering into the deeper shadows or because of that phosphorescence in the eyes that stared back at me. I raised my voice softly, not to break too much the stillness of the night. Hello? Who's there? Are you lost or marooned? Can I help? There was a little pause. I was conscious of a soft lapping at my feet. A stronger night wind had sprung up, was ruffling the dark waters. I had been overwarm, and where it struck me, the perspiration turned cold on my body, so that I shivered uncontrollably. You can stay and talk a while, if you will. I am lonely, but not lost. I, I live here. I could hardly believe my ears. The voice was little more than a whisper, but it had carried clearly. A girl's voice, sure enough. And she lived there in an old abandoned canal boat, half submerged in the stagnant water. You're not alone there? No, not alone. My father lives here with me, but he's deaf and he sleeps soundly. 
Did the night wind blow still colder, as though it came to us from some unseen frozen sea? Or was there something in her tone that chilled me, even as a strange attraction drew me toward her? I wanted to draw near to her, to see closely the pale, heart-shaped face, to lose myself in the bright eyes that I had seen shining in the darkness. I wanted... I wanted to hold her in my arms, to find her mouth with mine, to kiss it. With a start, I realized the nature of my thoughts, and for an instant lost all thought and surprise. Never in my twenty-two years had I felt love before. My fancies had been otherwise directed. A moss-grown fallen gravestone was a dearer thing to me to contemplate than the fairest face in all the world— Yet surely what I felt now was love. I took a reckless step near the edge of the bank. Could I come over to you? I begged. It's warm, and I don't mind getting wet. It's late, I know, but I would give a great deal to sit beside you and talk, if only for a few minutes before I go back to town. It's a lonely place here for a girl like you to live. Your father would not mind if you exchange a few words with someone occasionally. Was it the unconventionality of my request that made her next words sound like a long-drawn shudder of protest? There was a strangeness in the tones of her voice that held me wondering every time she spoke. No, no, oh no, you must not swim across. Then could I come tomorrow, or some day soon, in the daytime? And would you let me come on board then, or would you come on shore and talk to me, perhaps? Not in the daytime, never in the daytime. Again, the intensity of her low-toned negation held me spellbound. It was not her sense of impropriety of the hour, then, that dictated her manner. For surely any girl with the slightest sense of the fitness of things would rather have a tryst by daytime than after midnight. Yet there was an inference in her last words that if I came again, it should again be at night. Still feeling the spell that had enthralled me, as one does not forget the presence of a drug in the air that is stealing one's senses even when those senses begin to wander and to busy themselves with other things. I yet spoke shortly. Why do you say never in the daytime? Do you mean that I may come more than this once at night, though now you won't let me cross the canal to you at the expense of my own clothes, and you won't put down your plank or drawbridge or whatever you come on shore with and talk to me here for only a moment? I'll come again if you'll let me talk to you instead of calling across the water. I'll come again at any time you will let me, day or night, I don't care. I want to come to you, but I only ask you to explain. If I came in the daytime and met your father, wouldn't that be the best thing to do? Then we could really be acquainted. We could be friends. In the nighttime, my father sleeps. In the daytime, I sleep. How could I talk to you or introduce you to my father, then? If you came on board this boat in the daytime, you would find my father, and you would be sorry. As for me, I would be sleeping. I could never introduce you to my father, do you see? You sleep soundly. You and your father. Again, there was peak in my voice. Yes, we sleep soundly. And always at different times. Always at different times. We are on guard. One of us is always on guard. We have been hardly used down there in your city, and we have taken refuge here, and we are always, 
always on guard. The resentment vanished from my breast, and I felt my heart go out to her anew. She was so pale, so pitiful in the night. My eyes were learning better and better how to pierce the darkness. They were giving me a more definite picture of my companion, if I could think of her as a companion, between myself and whom stretched the black water. The sadness of the lonely scene, the perfection of the solitude itself, these things contributed to her pitifulness. And there was the strangeness of atmosphere of which, even yet, I had only partly taken note. There was the strange shivering chill, which yet did not seem like the healthful chill of a cool evening. In fact, it did not prevent me from feeling the oppression of the night, which was unusually sultry. It was like a little breath of deadly cold that came and went, and yet did not alter the temperature of the air itself, as the small ripples on the surface of the water do not concern the water even a foot down. And even that was not all. There was an unwholesome smell about the night, a dank, moldy smell that might have been the very breath of death and decay. Even I, the connoisseur in all things dismal and unwholesome, tried to keep my mind from dwelling overmuch upon that smell. What it must be to live breathing it constantly in, I could not think. But no doubt the girl and her father were used to it, and no doubt it came from the stagnant water of the canal and from the rotting wood of the old half-sunken boat that was their refuge. My heart throbbed with pity again, their refuge. What a place! And my clearer vision of the girl showed me that she was pitifully thin, even though possessed of the strange face that drew me to her. Her clothes hung around her like old rags, but hers was no scarecrow aspect. Although little flesh clothed her bones, her bones were very beautiful. I was sure the little pale, heart-shaped face would be more beautiful still if I could only see it closely. I must see it closely. I must establish some claim to consideration as a friend of the strange, lonely crew of the half-sunken wreck. This is a poor place to call a refuge, I said finally. One might have very little money and yet do somewhat better. Perhaps I might help you. I am sure I could. If your ill-treatment in the city was because of poverty, I am not rich, but I could help that. I could help you a little with money if you would let me. Or in any case, I could find a position for you. I'm sure I could do that. The eyes that shone fitfully toward me like two small pools of water intermittently lit by a cloud-swept sky seemed to glow more brightly. She had been half crouching, half sitting on top of the cabin. Now she leaped to her feet with one quick, sinuous, abrupt motion and took a few rapid, restless steps to and fro before she answered. When she spoke, her voice was little more than a whisper, yet surely rage was in its shrill sibilance. Fool, do you think you would be helping me to tie me to a desk, to shut me behind doors, away from freedom, away from the delight of doing my own will, of seeking my own way? Never, never would I let you do that. Rather this old boat, rather a deserted grave under the stars for my home. A boundless surprise swept over me, and a positive feeling of kinship with this strange being whose face I had hardly seen possessed me. So I myself might have spoken, so I had often felt, though I had never dreamed of putting my thoughts so definitely, so forcibly. 
My regularized daytime life was a thing I thought little of. I really lived only in my nocturnal prowlings. Why, this girl was right. All of life should be free and spent in places that interested and attracted. How little, how little I knew that night that dread forces were tugging at my soul, were finding entrance to it and easy access through the morbid weakness of my nature. How little I knew at what cost I deviated so radically from my kind, who heard in cities and love well-lit ways at the sight of man, and sweet and wholesome places to be solitary and when the desire for solitude comes over them. That night it seemed to me that there was but one important thing in life to allay the angry passion my unfortunate words had aroused in the breast of my beloved and to win from her some answering feeling. I understand much better than you think, I whispered tremulously. What I want is to see you again, to come to know you and to serve you in any way that I may. Surely there must be something in which I can be of use to you. All you have to do from tonight on, forever, is to command me. I swear it. You swear that? You do swear it? Delighted at the eagerness of her words, I lifted my hand toward the dark heavens. I swear it. From this night on, forever, I swear it. Then listen. Tonight you may not come to me, nor I to you. I do not want you to board this boat, not tonight, not any night, and most of all, not any day. But do not look so sad. I will come to you. Now, not tonight, perhaps not for many nights, yet before very long. I will come to you there on the bank of the canal, when the water in the canal ceases to flow. I must have made a gesture of impatience or of despair. It sounded like a way of saying never. But why should the water in the canal cease to flow? She read my thoughts in some way, for she answered them. You do not understand. I am speaking seriously. I am promising to meet you there on the bank, and soon, for the water within these banks is moving slower, always slower. Higher up I have heard that the canal has been drained. Between these lower locks the water still seeps in and drops, slowly, slowly downstream, but there will come a night when it will be quite, quite stagnant. And on that night I will come to you. And when I come, I will ask you a favor. And you will keep your oath. It was all the assurance I could get that night. She had come back to the side of the cabin where she had sat crouched before. And she resumed again that posture and sat still and silent, watching me. Sometimes I could see her eyes upon me, and sometimes not, but I felt that their gaze was unwavering. The little cold breeze, which I had finally forgotten while I was talking with her, was blowing again, and the unwholesome smell of decay grew heavier before the dawn. She would not speak again, nor answer me when I spoke to her, and I grew nervous and strangely ill at ease, at last I went away, and in the first faint light of dawn, I slipped up the stairs of my rooming house and into my own room. I was deadly tired at the office next day. 
and day after day slipped away and I grew more and more weary, for a man cannot wake day and night without suffering, especially in hot weather, and that was what I was doing. I haunted the old towpath and waited night after night on the bank opposite the sunken boat. Sometimes I saw my lady of the darkness and sometimes not. When I saw her she spoke little, but sometimes she sat there on the top of the cabin and let me watch her till the dawn, or until the strange uneasiness that was like fright drove me from her and back to my room where I tossed restlessly in the heat and dreamed strange dreams, half waking till the sun shone in on my forehead and I tumbled into my clothes and down to the office again. Once I asked her why she had made the fanciful condition that she would not come ashore to meet me until the waters of the canal had ceased to run. How eagerly I studied those waters, how I stole away at noontime more than once, not to approach the old boat, but to watch the almost imperceptible downdrift of bubbles, bits of straw, twigs, rubbish. My questioning displeased her, and I asked her that no more. It was enough that she chose to be whimsical. My part was to wait. It was more than a week later that I questioned her again this time on a different subject, and after that I curbed my curiosity relentlessly. Never speak to me of things you do not understand about me. Never again. Or I will not show myself to you again. And when I walk on the path yonder, it will not be with you. I had asked her what form of persecution she and her father had suffered in the city that had driven them out to this lonely place, and where in the city they had lived. Frightened seriously, lest I lose the ground I was sure I had gained with her, I was about to speak of something else, but before I could find the words, her low voice came to me again. Horrible, horrible. Those little houses below the bridge, those houses along the canal, tell me, are they not worse than my boat? Life there was shut in and furtive. I was not free as I am now, and the freedom I will soon have will make me forget the things I have not yet forgotten. This screaming the reviling and cursing, fear and flight. As you pass back by those houses, think how you would like to be shut in one of them and fear for your life. And then think of them no more, for I would forget them and I will never speak of them again. I dared not answer her. I was surprised that she had vouchsafed me so much, but surely her words meant this that before she had come to live on the decaying, water-rotted old boat, she had lived in one of those horrible houses I passed on my way to her, those houses each of which looked like the predestined scene of a murder. As I left her that night, I felt that I was very daring. One or two nights more, and you will walk beside me, I called to her. I have watched the water at noon, and it hardly moves at all. I threw a scrap of paper into the canal, and it whirled and swung a little where a thin skim of oil lay on the water down there, oil from the big, dirty city you are well out of. But though I watched and watched, I could not see it move downward at all. Perhaps tomorrow night, or the night after, you will walk on the bank with me. I hope it will be clear and moonlight, 
and I will be near enough to see you clearly, as well as you seem always to see me in darkness or moonlight equally well, and perhaps I will kiss you, but not unless you let me. And yet, the next day, for the first time, my thoughts were definitely troubled. I had been living in a dream. I began to speculate concerning the end of the path on which my feet were set. I had conceived from the first such a horror of those old houses by the canal. They were well enough to walk past, nursing gruesome thoughts for a midnight treat. But much as I loved all that was weird and eerie about the girl I was wooing so strangely, it was a little too much for my fancy that she had come from them. By this time I had become decidedly unpopular in my place of business. Not that I had made enemies, but that my peculiar ways had caused too much adverse comment. It would have taken very little, I think, to have made the entire office force decide that I was mad after the events of the next twenty-four hours. And after this letter is found and read, they will be sure that they knew it all along. At this time, however, they were punctiliously polite to me, and merely let me alone as much as possible, which suited me perfectly. I dragged wearily through day after day, exhausted from lack of sleep, conscious of their speculative glances, living only for the night to come. But on this day I approached the man who had invited me to the camp across the river, who had unknowingly shown me the way that led to my love. Have you ever noticed the row of tumble-down houses along the canal on the city side? I asked him. He gave me an odd look. I suppose he sensed the significance of my breaking silence after so long to speak of them, sensed in some way that I had a deep interest in them. You have odd tastes, Morton, he said after a moment. I suppose you wander into strange places sometimes. I've heard you speak of an enthusiasm for graveyards at night, but my advice to you is to keep away from those houses. They're unsavory, and their reputation is unsavory. Positively, I think you'd be in danger of your life if you go poking around there. They've been the scene of several murders, and a dope den or two has been cleaned out of them. Why in the world you would want to investigate them? I don't expect to investigate them, I said testily. I was merely interested in them, from the outside. To tell you the truth, I'd heard a story, a rumor— never mind where, but you say there have been murders there. I suppose this rumor I heard may have to do with an attempted one. There was a girl who lived there with her father once, and they were set upon there, or something of the sort, and had to run away. Did you ever hear that story? Barrett gave me an odd look, such as one gives in speaking of a past horror so dreadful that the mere speaking of it makes it live terribly again. What you say reminds me of a horrible thing that was said to have happened down there once, he said. It was in all the papers. A little child disappeared in one of those houses, and a couple of poor lodgers who lived there, a girl and her father, were accused of having made away with it. They were accused. They were accused. Oh, well, I don't like to talk about such things. It was too dreadful. The child's body was found. Part of it was found. It was mutilated, and the people in the house seemed to believe it had been mutilated in order to conceal the manner of its death. 
There was an ugly wound in the throat. It finally came out, and it seemed as if the child might have been bled to death. It was found in the girl's room, hidden away. The old man and his daughter escaped before the police were called. The countryside was scoured, but they were never found. Why, you must have read it in the papers several years ago. I nodded with a heavy heart. I had read it in the papers, I remember it now. And again a terrible questioning came over me. Who was this girl? What was this girl who seemed to have my heart in her keeping? Why did not a merciful God let me die then? Befogged with exhaustion, bemused in a dire enchantment, my mind was incapable of thought and yet some soul process akin to that which saves the sleepwalker poised at perilous heights sounded its warning now. My mind was filled with doleful images. There were women, I had heard and read, who slew to satisfy a bloodlust. There were ghosts, specters, call them what you will, their names have been legion in the dark pages of that lore which dates back to the infancy of the races of the earth who retained even in death this bloodlust. Vampires. They had been called that. I had read of them. Corpses by day, spirits of evil by night, roaming abroad in their own forms or in the forms of bats or unclean beasts, killing body and soul of their victims. For whoever dies of the repeated kiss of the vampire which leaves its mark on the throat and draws the blood from the body becomes a vampire also. Of such things I have read. And horror of horrors in that last cursed day at the office, I remembered reading of these vampires, these undead, that in their nocturnal flights they had one limitation— they could not cross running water. That night I went my usual nightly way with tears of weakness on my face, for my weakness was supreme, and I recognized fully at last the misery of being the victim of an enchantment stronger than my feeble will. But I went. I approached the neighborhood of the canal boat as the distant city clock chimed the first stroke of twelve. It was the dark of the moon, and the sky was overcast. Heat lightning flickered low in the sky, seeming to come from every point of the compass and circumscribe the horizon, as if unseen fires burned behind the rim of the world. By its fitful glimmer I saw a new thing— between the old boat and the canal bank stretched a long, slim, solid-looking shadow. A plank had been let down. In that moment I realized that I had been playing with powers of evil which had no intent now to let me go, which were indeed about to lay hold upon me with an inexorable grasp. Why had I come tonight? Why? But that the spell of the enchantment laid upon me was a thing more potent and far more unbreakable than any wholesome spell of love. The creature I sought out, oh, I remembered now, with the cold perspiration beating my brow, the lore hidden away between the covers of the dark old book which I had read so many years ago, and half forgotten, until dim memories of it stirred within me this last day and night. 
my lady of the night, no woman of wholesome flesh and blood and odd perverted tastes that matched my own, but one of the undead. In that moment I knew it, and knew that vampires of old legends polluted still in these latter days the surface of the earth, and on the instant behind me in the darkness there was a crackle of a twig, and something brushed my arm. This, then, was the fulfillment of my dream. I knew without turning my head that the pale, dainty face with its glowing eyes was near my own, that I had only to stretch out my arm to touch the slender grace of the girl I had so longed to draw near. I knew and should have felt the rapture I had anticipated. Instead, the roots of my hair prickled coldly, unendurably, as they had on the night when I had first sighted the old boat. The miasmic odors of the night, heavy and oppressive with heat and unrelieved by a breath of air, all but overcame me, and I fought with myself to prevent my teeth clicking in my head. The little waves of coldness I had felt often in this spot were chasing over my body, yet they were not from any breeze. The leaves on the trees hung down motionless, as though they were actually wilting on their branches. With an effort, I turned my head. Two hands caught me round my neck. The pale face was so near that I felt the warm breath from its nostrils fanning my cheek, and suddenly all that was wholesome in my perverted nature rose uppermost. I longed for the touch of the red mouth like a dark flower opening before me in the night. I longed for it, and yet more I dreaded it. I shrank back, catching in a powerful grip the fragile wrists of the hands that strove to hold me. I must not, I must not, yield to the faintness that I felt stealing over me. I was facing down the path toward the city. A low rumble of thunder, the first, broke the torrid hush of the summer night. A glare of lightning seemed to tear the night asunder, to light up the universe. Overhead, the clouds were careering madly in fantastic shapes, driven by a wind that swept the upper heavens without causing even a trembling in the air lower down. And far down the canal, that baleful glare seemed to play around and hover over the little row of shanties, murder cursed and haunted by the ghost of a dead child. My gaze was fixed on them while I held away from me the pallid face and fought off the embrace that sought to overcome my resisting will, and so a long moment passed. The glare faded out of the sky, and a greater darkness took the world. But there was a near, more menacing glare fastened upon my face, the glare of two eyes that watched mine, that had watched me as I, unthinking, stared down at the dark houses. This girl, this woman who had come to me at my own importunate requests, did not love me since I had shrunk from her. She did not love me. But it was not only that. She had watched me as I gazed down at the houses that held her dark past, and I was sure that she divined my thoughts. She knew my horror of those houses. She knew my newborn horror of her. And she hated me for it, hated me more malignantly than I had believed a human being could hate. And at that point in my thoughts I felt my skin prickle and my scalp rise again. Could a human being cherish such hatred as I read, trembling more and more, in those glowing fires lit with what seemed to me more like the fires of hell than any light that ought to shine in a woman's eyes? And through all this, not a word had passed between us. 
So far, I have written calmly. I wish that I could write on so to the end. If I could do that, there might be one or two of those who will regard this as the document of a maniac who would believe the horrors of which I am about to write. But I am only flesh and blood. At this point in the happenings of the awful night, my calmness deserted me. At this point, I felt that I had been drawn into the midst of a horrible nightmare from which there was no escape, no waking. As I write, this feeling again overwhelms me until I can hardly write at all. Until, were it not for the thing which I must do, I would rush out into the street and run, screaming, until I was caught and dragged away to be put behind strong iron bars. Perhaps I would feel safe there. Perhaps. I know that, terrified at the hate I saw confronting me in those redly gleaming eyes, I would have slunk away. The two thin hands that caught my arm again were strong enough to prevent that, however. I had been spared her kiss, but I was not to escape from the oath I had taken. To serve her. You promised, you swore, she hissed in my ear, and tonight you are to keep your oath. I felt my senses reel, my oath. Yes, I had an oath to keep. I had lifted my hand toward the dark heavens and sworn to serve her in any way she chose, freely and of my own volition I had sworn. I sought to evade her. Let me help you back to your boat, I begged. You have no kindly feeling for me, and you have seen it. I love you no longer. I'll go back to the city. You can go back to your father and forget that I broke your peace. The laughter that greeted my speech I shall never forget. Not in the depths under the scummy surface of the canal. Not in the empty places between the worlds where my tortured soul may wander. So you do not love me, and I hate you. Fool! Have I waited these weary months for the water to stop only to go back now? after my father and I returned here and found the old boat rotting in the drained canal and took refuge in it, when the water was turned into the canal while I slept so that I could never escape until its flow should cease, because of the thing that I am. Even then I dreamed of tonight, when the imprisonment we still shared ceased the matter to my father. Come on board the deserted boat tomorrow and see why, if you dare. Still I dreamed on of tonight. I have been lonely, desolate. Starving. Now the whole world will be mine, and by your help. I asked her, somehow, what she wanted of me, and a madness came over me so that I hardly heard her reply. Yet, somehow, I knew that there was that on the opposite shore of the great river where the pleasure camps were that she wanted to find. In the madness of my terror... She made me understand and obey her. I must carry her in my arms across the long bridge over the river, deserted in the small hours of the night. The way back to the city was long tonight, long. She walked behind me, and I turned my eyes, neither to right nor left. Only as I passed the tumbled-down houses, I saw the reflection in the canal and trembled so that I could have fallen to the ground at the thoughts of the little child this woman had been accused of slaying there, 
and at this certainty I felt that she was reading my thoughts. And now the horror that engulfed me darkened my brain. I know that we set our feet upon the long, wide bridge that spanned the river. I know the storm broke there, so that I battled for my footing, almost for my life, it seemed, against the pelting deluge. And the horror I had invoked was in my arms, clinging to me, burying its head upon my shoulder. So increasingly dreadful had my pale-faced companion become to me that I hardly thought of her now as a woman at all only as a demon of the night. The tempest raged still as she leaped down out of my arms on the other shore. And again I walked with her against my will, while the trees lashed their branches around me, showing the pale undersides of their leaves in the vivid frequent flashes that rent the heavens. On and on we went, branches flying through the air, and missing us by a miracle of ill fortune such as she and I are not slain by falling branches. The river was a welter of whitecaps, flattened down into strange shapes by the pounding rain. The clouds as we glimpsed them were like devils flying through the sky. Past dark tent after dark tent we stole, and past a few where lights burned dimly behind their canvas walls. And at last we came to an old quarry, into its artificial ravine she led me, and up to a crevice in the rock wall. Reach in your hand and pull out the loose stone you will feel, she whispered. It closes an opening that leads into deep caverns. A human hand must remove that stone. Your hand must move it. Why did I struggle so to disobey her? Why did I fail? It was as though I knew... But my failure was foreordained. I had taken oath. If you who read have believed that I have set down the truth thus far, a little that is left you will call the ravings of a madman overtaken by his madness. Yet these things happened. I stretched out my arm, driven by a compulsion I could not resist. At arm's length in the niche in the rock, I felt something move, the loose rock, a long, narrow fragment much larger than I had expected. Yet it moved easily, seeming to swing on a natural pivot. Outward it swung, toppling toward me. A moment more, and there was a swift rush of the ponderous weight I had loosened. I leaped aside and went down, my forehead grazed by the rock. For a brief moment I must have been unconscious, but only for a moment. My head a stabbing agony of pain, unreal lights flashing before my eyes. I yet knew the reality of the storm that beat me down as I struggled to my feet. I knew the reality of the dark, loathsome shapes that passed me in the dark, crawling out of the orifice in the rock and flapping through the wild night along the way that led to the pleasure camps. So the caverns I had laid open to the outer world were infested with bats, I had been inside unlit caverns, and had heard there the squeakings of the things, felt and heard the flapping of their wings. But never in all my life before had I seen bats as large as men and women. Sick and dizzy from the blow on my head, and from disgust, I crept along the way they were going. If I touched one of them, I felt that I should die of horror.' 
Now, at last, the storm abated, and a heavy darkness made the whole world seem like the inside of a tomb. Where the tents stood in a long row, the number of the monster bats seemed to diminish. It was as though, horrible thought, they were creeping into the tents with their slumbering occupants. At last I came to a lighted tent and paused, crouching so that the dim radiance which shone through the canvas did not touch me in the shadows. And there I waited, but not for long. There was a dark form silhouetted against the tent, a rustle and confusion, and the dark thing was again in silhouette, but with a difference in the quality of the shadow. The dark thing was inside the tent now, its bat wings extending across the entrance through which it had crept. Fear held me spellbound, and as I looked the shadow changed again imperceptibly so that I could not have told how it changed. But now it was not the shadow of a bat, but of a woman. The storm! The storm! I am lost, exhausted. I crept in here to beg for refuge until the dawn. That low, thrilling, sibilant voice, too well I knew it. Within the tent I heard a murmur of acquiescent voices. At last I began to understand. I knew the nature of the woman I had carried over the river in my arms, the woman who would not even cross the canal until the water should have ceased utterly to flow. I remembered the books I had read. Dracula, other books and stories. I knew they were true books and stories now. I knew those horrors existed for me. I had indeed kept my oath to the creature of darkness. I had brought her to her kind under her guidance. I had let them loose in hordes upon the pleasure camps. The campers were doomed, and through them, others. I forgot my fear. I rushed from my hiding place up to the tent door, and there I screamed and called aloud, Don't take her in! Don't let her stay! Not the others that have crept into the other tents. Wake all the campers! They will sleep on to their destruction! Drive out the interlopers. Drive them out quickly. They are not human. No, and they are not bats. Do you hear me? Do you understand? I was fairly howling in a voice that was strange to me. She's a vampire. They're all vampires. Vampires. Inside the tent I heard a new voice. What can be the matter with that poor man? The voice said. It was a woman's and gentle "'Crazy. Somebody out of his senses, dear,' a man's voice answered. "'Don't be frightened.' And then the voice I knew so well, so well. "'I saw a falling rock strike a man on the head in the storm. "'He staggered away, but I suppose it crazed him.' I waited for no more. I ran away, madly through the night and back across the bridge to the city. Next day, today... I boarded the sunken canal boat. It is the abode of death. No woman could have lived there, only such an one as she. The old man's corpse was there. He must have died long, long ago. The smell of death and decay on the boat was dreadful. Again I felt that I understood. Back in those awful houses she had committed the crime when she first became the thing she is, and he, her father, less sin-steeped and less accursed, attempted to destroy the evidence of her crime and fled with her. 
that died without becoming like her. She had said that one of the two was always on watch. Did he indeed divide her vigil on the boat? What more fitting? The dead standing watch with the undead. And no wonder that she would not let me aboard the craft of death, even to carry her away. And still I feel the old compulsion. I have been spared her kiss, but for a little while. Yet I will not. Let the power of my oath draw me back till I enter the caverns with her and creep forth in the form of a bat to prey upon mankind. Before that can happen, I, too, will die. Today in the city I heard that a horde of strange insects or small animals infested the pleasure camps last night. Some said with horror-baited breath that they perhaps were rats. None of them were seen, but in the morning nearly every camper had a strange, deep wound in his throat. I almost laughed aloud. They were so horrified at the idea of an army of rats creeping into the tents and biting the sleeping occupants on their throats. If they had seen what I saw, if they knew that they are doomed to spread corruption. So my own death will not be enough. Today I bought supplies for blasting. Tonight I will set my train of dynamite. From the hole I made in the cliff where the vampires creep in and out, along the row of tents as far as the last one. Then I shall light my fuse. It will be done before dawn. Tomorrow the city will mourn its dead and execrate my name. And then, at last, in the slime beneath the unmoving waters of the canal, I shall find peace. But perhaps it will not be peace for I shall seek it midway between the old boat and its cargo of death and the row of dismal houses where a little child was done to death when first she became the thing she is. That is my expiation. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Wayne. And we're going to talk about... The Canal by Everell Worrell, first published in Weird Tales, December 27th, 19... Oh, not December 27th. December 1927. Um, a vampire story recommended by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, he wrote a letter to Weird Tales, I believe, uh, saying how much he enjoyed it, which was something he was very generous about doing. Um, and uh, I think that's how I... I said, I better check this out. I, I started checking out all the ones he recommended. And there's some that are pretty good. And then there's some that are, like, really good. And this is one of the really good ones. Um, I heard from, I think, both Wayne and Jim that there is an alternative version of the story's ending, which is interesting because I thought, oh, it's because I didn't put up the original yet. So I printed that out. And I started reading it, and I'm like, it's exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> so the version that you narrated, uh, Wayne, um, has uh, dynamite. And the version that exists elsewhere, somewhere, has no dynamite. Is that correct? Yeah, he uh, uh, 
the vampire ends up being slain with uh, a wooden stake, or actually a wooden, a wooden, sword. A wooden sword. Okay, and, so uh, where, where is this found? Where is it to be found? Uh, I think I just found it a few minutes ago uh, on wiki, not wiki, wiki as in wiki, wiki source. source. Really? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, wiki source. Yep. Wiki source version is the version I've got in an an anthology where I first read it, James by, by James Dickey, uh, called The Undead, mm-hmm. and it's it's identical until they get the bit with the canal and it's a stormy night and there's white caps on the canal, and then in the version narrate, way narrated, they go to a cave, there's a vampire cap on a tank on the camp. However, on the wiki source version, it's a lot more low key. There's no big attack. And it ends with him going, I've got a wooden sword, and that bitch is getting it. Aha, mm-hmm. that's what you were talking yeah. about earlier with the wooden yeah, sword. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I decided to read it after listening to Wayne's version twice because, you know, because it's, 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 it's excellent listening and excellent narration on your part, Wayne. And oh, I got to you. the end of thinking, wait, wait a minute. What, what is this wooden sword crap? This was a wooden sword. This, where's the, <laughs> where's the dynamite? He's supposed to blow it up. But yeah, there's, yeah. No, there's no secret cavern only opened by a mortal man's hand. Oh, or I, any like of that. That. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew this, done, I've done this story for years. So I was listening to Wayne's version and something like, I've got dementia. I can't yeah. remember this ending at all. <laughs> People turning to giant bats. Well, how did I forget this? This is amazing. It is amazing. And what's so funny is they're saying they're taking the, the wiki source says it's from Weird Tales, Volume Ten, Issue Six. I'm like, I'm holding that in my hand. The, uh, you know, the PDF I made straight from those pages, and it's identical to the 1950. Uh, 1935 April Weird Tales reprint. It's, you know, it doesn't have the art, but the word for word, it's identical. Mm. And um, d- you did you all get a chance to watch the uh, uh, Night Gallery adaptation? I did. Paul, I thought I did. It was, I didn't. Oh, you did. I thought, the, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was pretty good, actually. It's interesting. It's it's half hour. It's changed radically. Um, and it doesn't have dynamite, but um, there's some really fun things in it. Did you say you didn't, Mr. Jim? Yes, I missed it. I couldn't, find, I couldn't locate my nut gallery discs. Oh, <laughs> I only found yeah. them late this I was going to watch it this afternoon, but then I had to fix Skype. Ah, uh, yes. Which, took, <laughs> which you haven't out. quite. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I used a workaround. Yes. I used it on a different device and an older version. What about you, Paul? I I wasn't able to open up the document that uh, Wayne had given with with the links, and I was trying to search it on the internet, and I couldn't find it. I thought, oh, the heck with it! I'll just listen to the audio again ah. and then read it. Well, well the um, the Night Gallery uh, version was uh, according to um, the page that uh, had the link on it mm-hmm. was. Uh, Leonard Nimoy's directorial debut. Mm-hmm. So, he was competent was at it, I think. I mean, it was... Oh, uh, yeah, cool. Uh, the, uh, the main problem, I think, is shooting day for night is not easy, and they didn't do it very well. It seems very dreamlike, and and also like it's shot during daytime. <laughs> yeah, it's like those uh, 1960s westerns 
the black and white that used to be on TV all the time. And it was like in a night shot. Yeah. All he did was put a, <laughs> put a, uh, 10% darkening filter over the camera lens yeah. and everything else was, you know, the shadows and the sun is up there. And yeah. It literally was like as bright as daylight. <laughs> they, and they, however, yeah. on the plus side, it had Leslie Ann Warren as the vampire. Wow, s- smoking oh, hot. Oh, wow, nice. Yeah, smoking hot. It. But also, like, I couldn't believe how sexually provocative it was. Like, yeah, I know. For not what's that's the seventies, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's almost like could they allow that on television? The way she's posing and you know leaning. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Les- at the Leslie end, Leslie Ann Warren and her middle name is Cleavage. Holy, but <laughs> but the thing is, is like even like the way it was composed. So after she's gone and drunk, drunk this other dude who shows up in the story, um, the, the competition, um, she's laying on a on a uh, I don't know a bed or something, and the and the bed spreads, you know, red like like it's it was very good at evoking the um, attraction that the narrator in in the story feels. For yes, this, absolutely. This uh, essentially skeleton, right? That's the thing is, uh, you look closely at the description of her. She's got a heart-shaped face, and then she's bony <laughs> because she hasn't <laughs> drunk anybody, you know, since she, you know, left left those uh, murderous houses. It turns out she's the murderer. Um, <laughs> I Spoiler. Think, yeah, I think that this is um, <laughs> it's a very well-written story and I, I i know this in part because i kept going over it with uh, students i read it with one student uh over weeks and then i read it with uh, another student starting yesterday and just like the amount of poetic um technique she uses just in the first page is yep. super super high level like she's as she says in the first line Past the sweeping city, the river sweeps. Uh, past the sleeping city, the river sweeps along its left bank. The old canal along its left bank, the old canal creeps. So sweeps and creeps. Uh, oh, it's rhyme. And, and, then, then, and then the next e, line. That's right. Says, I did not think that to be poetry. So she's very self-aware what she's doing. And yes, and so it, is the narrator, who is turns out is writing a suicide note. Except it's a very long suicide note. <laughs> <laughs> he, brought, he doesn't like, want to rush into things he brought a whole book to fill up um yeah um and uh and then like uh i was i teach all these techniques to students but i'm like look at how many times words are repeated so in that line i did not intend that that to be poetry although the scene is poetic somberly gruesomely poetic like the poems of poe and so you get all these all these PPP sounds, but then the word poetic and poetic just twice. And then uh, a few lines uh, lower or near the bottom of that first column, uh, at least on um, one version of this, it says, let me write down the things I am to write down <laughs> and let them be taken as they will be taken for the last ravings of a madman. And so he's got this, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to be, they're going to be taken. They're going to be taken. He he does sound insane in a certain sense. And uh, in the next line, listen to this: the city will be in its be in mourning, 
for the thing I shall have done, but its mourning will be of no consequence besides the other fate from which I shall have saved it. Now, I don't know how that can, although it's beautiful, I don't think that makes much sense if he kills her with a wooden sword. Right? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that that line is in, in the alternate version. It's interesting. I, I wonder where these, the changes came from because they, they much more closely match the, um, the, the TV adaptation than they do, you know, there's a, right. Uh, he's got, the, uh, her father has a giant stake that he can't use. Right. And she says, use it on me. Stab me with it. Your giant wooden stake. Stab me with it. Right. And it's like, whoa, it's actually explicit. And then he can't do it. And then the father does it. And it's like, wow, that's a lot of symbolism there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so do we think that Everell Worrell made those changes? Because I haven't read them. Are they um, are they as poetic? Uh, I don't think um, the other version was as... Uh it was as dramatic, was as big as this one is. You know, it didn't have the the element of uh, suicide in it, unless um, you want to consider himself surrendering himself to her, not knowingly. Uh, it was a type of suicide, um, and it didn't have the dynamite blowing up everything, ending, and and the whole heroic aspect of um, killing all the vampires. Um, you know, in one fell swoop with the dynamite and and taking that task on himself and then killing himself. Didn't have all that drama in it. I mean, it was still good, but it was, you know, it seemed to me toned down. Don't you think, Jim? Uh, Definitely. It's kind of, I'm wondering when this expansion occurred or whether at some point it was reprinted and someone said, well, we've got a bit more space, actually. You uh, are going to beef up the ending? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> director's cut you know <laughs> I remember a lot of these people got paid by the word in the day by the pulp so I'm sure it's kind of yes yes I'll add more because the original <laughs> version is only like two two pages you know less than two pages uh, well in my paperback edition whereas the the narrated version we have you have this you know full kind of blog you know Hollywood blockbuster ending so that is the original right the the uh, the long I I assume it's longer. I haven't read the the one that's on Wikisource, but it 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 could be similar length. But um, uh, just thinking like you don't have the camp invasion, you don't have the people being bit on the neck by rats. They think, um, and you don't have the uh, uh, the thing I'm about to do is very important, but people will revile me for it. Um, I'm not a little unclear as to what he he's even talking about. He's he's killing everybody, right? And then with the dynamite, so all do all the people in the camp die as well? Yeah, uh, because they've been you know uh, infected, so to speak. You know, but they've been they've been vampire bit, so they're going to be vampires themselves if they aren't uh, dispatched. And so is he blowing up the camp? And the and the caves, or what? Hmm. What we know he's he's about to kill everybody. He hasn't been bit by the end, but 
he's a little hard to follow, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I I get the sense that everybody's going to die. And then they're going to say this was a great disaster and whoever did this is a monster. Right. That's the sense I get, too. But uh, it ends with a uh, completely differently, right? So he says, and then at last in the slime beneath the unmoving waters of the canal, I shall find peace. So he's almost going to make sure that he can't get away. But perhaps it will not be peace, for I shall seek it midway between the old boat with its cargo of death and the row of dismal houses where a little child was done to death when first she became the thing she is. That is my expiation. And I had to look up expiation, and I've forgotten what it means, but it's something like um, uh, redemption? Yeah, yeah. or, uh, you know, uh, uh, an excuse. Atonement, almost. yeah, it says. Yeah. Atonement. I'm surprised you haven't taught that as a vocab word to your students. Yes, I haven't it's a good seen word. it before. I mean, it's basically an, uh, dropped out of use as far as I can see. At least I, I don't hang more, out with it, people who talk about you know, it. You know, you know, more. Yeah, it's it's it, it. I mean, you talk to Scott. It's a it's a very Catholic Christian uh, religious word, expiation for sins and things like mm. that. Mm-hmm. So I I would say uh, I can totally see why H.P. Lovecraft loved this story, and it isn't so much about the girl, although I think that's all well done. I, I and I think you would appreciate that, but. I think he loved it for the character who's telling the story. Yeah, I thought he was very Lovecraftian in yep. his uh, in his uh, some of his character characteristics. Uh, you know, uh, he's the guy who loves to be alone. He's not afraid to be hanging out uh, alone in the dark in abandoned places. Uh, most people are. Um, uh, are loath to hang out in graveyards, but he loves to go to graveyards. He finds them peaceful for meditation. And, you know, that's a very Lovecraftian type of uh, character, I think. Yep, absolutely. And uh, it, it it sounded like H.P. Lovecraft, basically, going for night walks, driving out to the countryside, um, not making friends with the people he works at an office with. And uh, uh, I had a question for you, Wayne. Um, I think... Uh, a few days ago, at least, last time we chatted, um, and you said no, and you thought it was different. So I wrote uh, in my notes here, in Paris? Question mark. Listen to the first line. Past the sleeping city, the river sweeps along its left bank, the old canal creeps. So I would say... The left bank, that's isn't that part of Paris? <laughs> well, if, if, if he had said the left bank. Yeah, uh, and if it was capitalized, mm. it would definitely yeah. be. Yeah, but I mean, every canal, every, every canal has a, a left bank. Uh, it's true. <laughs> and has a right bank, too. Well, you know? Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, I I just pictured like this New England landscape. You have a river and then you have the canal along, along one side of it that's that would has fallen into disuse because, you know, canals are such a 19th century thing, and now it's just a place for run-down boats and slums. And it has, just like, just like a lot of waterways in American cities for a long time were the trashy areas until they've started to become remodernized and repurposed, you know, like the Riverwalk in San Antonio and stuff. So I was thinking, 
like back then, I mean, early, early to mid 20th century, uh, they were the more disreputable parts of town. Yeah, yeah, and it's very disreputable in here. It's it's actually quite strange because he never mentions the name of the city, nor the country, and there's no right. names in the entire story except for one one time when his coworker calls him Morton. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's curious. Uh, like this is something in the in the video adaptation they do instantly, right? He says, um, uh, "What's your name?" She says, "What is Hyacinth?" Uh, which mm-hmm. I guess is slightly better than Lily. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a flower of a name. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then she knows his name telepathically, which I thought was good because that's lifting from the story. I think she is telepathic, right? Yeah. In the, in the tale. And he says his name is Ron. And then there's this whole, uh, there's a whole, uh, other girlfriend and other boyfriend for the other girlfriend and they're fishmongers and, all sorts of stuff that's not related to the the story proper, but um, it somehow captures. You can see that it it was adapted from the world story. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it, they they changed some of those details, I think, to um, make it easier to you know fit into a half hour or hour presentation, whatever it was, in yeah, terms I think of it's the screen, in terms of the screenplay. You know, I mean, they didn't have to explain or take any time to explain uh, that uh, this guy liked to wander at night down by the canal because he lived and worked on the canal because he was a fishmonger. So there, that's why that was there, you know? Right. So I can, I can, I can see where they made some of the leaps. I don't think they went overboard on any of them, you know, as, as sometimes you can take a screenplay and go, where the hell did that idea come from? You know, Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with the original and, but uh, I don't think they committed those sins in, in that production. So there is a uh, I did uh, my own little drawings of of this lady. There is a terrific um, original illustration um, from the 1927 edition, and I I, I based my drawings off of that. Um, uh, it's Hugh Rankin. And you guys all get a chance to see this? I'm going to put it in the show notes. Oh, oh well, yeah. I recommend. Oh, you. is it the? Uh, is that the? Uh, the uh, looks like a a pencil sketch. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, grease pencil, I believe. <clears throat> um, that's what Hugh Rankin was using. And so there's on the left hand side there. She, there she is, our our vampire uh, antagonist or heroine. And she's got a 1920s flapper haircut, which I think is wonderful. She's got, she's doing sort of a dance move, like she's, or maybe she's sitting to cut his throat or something. And then our hero protagonist at the bottom has collapsed. Um, his eyes are probably closed, or maybe he's gone zombie. And then above, um, out of a cave, come giant bats. Huge bats, bigger than him, bigger than than the uh, the nameless vampire. It's a terrific image. Yeah, it's cool. And the, yeah. the little the little caption they have to let you know what part of the story mm-hmm. the sketch was inspired by says loathsome shapes 
flapped through the night along the way that led to the pleasure camps. <laughs> Loathsome shapes flapping their way through the night. I love that. Uh, and I, I also, I, I'm really curious. Uh, the, the, I was thinking about what what's going on in this city. He's got a motor car, right? uh, a roadster, he calls it. Um, he's got a friend who has a motorboat. He just got out of university three months ago. Uh, so I figured that means he graduated in June or something like that. And so this is like early fall, right? July, August, September. Um, he's already got a whole lifestyle going. He hasn't made a lot of friends. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's not unwilling to jump in the canal to swim over to the lady because it's warm. Although I'm not sure why she doesn't want him to. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe what that smell he was always smelling wasn't her, but rather her dad. <laughs> maybe. Um, and then what's going on with these? It's so weird. There's these these um, buildings that are uh, dilapidated along the canal, and then there's the camp. And as it says right in the quote there, the pleasure camps. I'm like, these aren't gypsies exactly, because it sort of makes it feel like they're you know camping. Um, yeah, the sense I got from it was it, it's like a uh, you know a recreational thing where people. People all camp out. Yeah, but is that a euphemism? Because like I got the sense that it was like uh, like a portable brothel. Mm. Mm. I don't know. I, I, I didn't pick, I didn't pick that up. So the, we get a line or two from the camper's point of view as the as the monsters um, come in and then. He has one of the most awesome lines I've ever read in a story. I can probably do it from memory. Um, he's saying, you know, you're in, you're all in danger. You're in danger. Um, he says to them, and he says, she's a vampire! <laughs> a vampire! <laughs> and then he says, vampires! <laughs> Three times. <laughs> and then the, he's a little... He's a little bit excited at that point. He's a little bit excited <laughs> at that point. He's um he's trying to save everybody, and then she says he hears her voice, um and she says, "Uh, I think uh, the storm caused a rock to hit him in the head." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to him, buddy. And it's like she's already inveigled her way into this into this tent, and all the other vampires are making their way into the other tents. And they're all going to die, right? Yeah. They're all feasting. It, it also qu doesn't quite follow. Like, um, the more I think about it, the more I understand why they went with the more minimal ending in a later edition. Because um, she's sitting on this canal boat, and we have to infer how she got there. We get a little uh, bit. I, th of I, th yeah, I think you might have missed a paragraph or, or so. He... Um when she finally deigns to uh, cross the canal because the water is mm -hmm. all the way down, uh, she crosses, meets him on the path, and commands him to carry her. Yep. So he actually carries her uh, from, I think, carries her no, from he does. the uh, from the the uh, uh, boat there, whatever it is, to um, the cave where they loose all the other vampires and then from, you know, 
from there. It's anybody's guess how they got to the camp. I mean, called an Uber or something. I think it's. I think it was fairly nearby. Um, it's somewhere in between there and the uh, dilapidated buildings. No, I meant originally. How did she get on the boat originally? Oh, so good question. Her father, in the adaptation, and it's interesting to think about the adaptation. Her father's still alive in the adaptation, right? But she mm-hmm. tells us uh, that he. Sl- oh, here it is. My father lives here with me, but he is deaf and he sleeps soundly. Those could be metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or he's dead and he's not getting up. But she, I believe she also says that he, he or maybe he infers that um, she, uh, he, she says, I sleep by day and he, he sleeps by night. Yeah, she, by she night. says that exp- she says that explicitly because the guy said, well, maybe I could come to you during the day. And she said, no, 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 no. I sleep during the day and my father sleeps at night and you would like to meet my father. No, no, no. Bad idea. So uh, there's more of that here. It says, in the nighttime, my father sleeps. In the daytime, I sleep. How could I talk to you or introduce you to my father then? If you came on board this boat in the daytime, you would find my father. <laughs> yep, there there it is. <laughs> and you would be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> As for me, I would be sleeping. I could never introduce you to my father, do you see? So I I always go when the vampires are talking that they're not lying. They they're just hiding the truth, right? They're tricking you. So I think she's actually telling the truth here. You sleep soundly, he says. Uh you and your father? Again there was a peak in my voice. Yes, we sleep soundly. And always at different times, like he's like Really? Always at different times, she says. We are on guard. Well, she's on guard, sort of. One of us is always on guard. We have been hardly used down there in your city, and we have taken refuge here, and we are always, always on guard. That repetition, again, she's so good. Uh, we're also good at that. Um, so I think that if she's lying, it's coming in this last little section here where she's saying um, she was hardly used. I think that's her perception, right? Uh, but Yeah, she can't understand why they were so pissed at her when she lived in the shacks just because she, you know, ate some little kid. Yeah, just because she ate a child, whatever. <laughs> um, but I, I, I like to think about how in the adaptation – um, it seems that her father took her to this boat, knowing that the waters were um, running, that she couldn't escape. It was his way of avoiding having to kill his own daughter, right, in the adaptation. And then uh, when it proves to be an ineffective way of uh, preventing her from, you know, doing evil, the father has to kill her, right? So it turns out that actually the whole... The whole point of the adaptation is the father's story, kind of, even though we yep. barely see him. Whereas in this, I think that may be, have been the case. Maybe the father did put them on this boat, and then he died after. I don't think he's yep. like a zombie, right? That he is actually awake uh, <laughs> when she's asleep. But I think that was the original plan, that he was to guard her there. Yeah, that all that all definitely follows. That all fits. Yeah, and it doesn't. It, it, it's not like so. If we imagine the backstory, I don't know. She goes into the cave in the same way that 
our narrator, uh, Morton, is inexplicably drawn to graveyards and lonely places, right? So he can meditate. Um, I think she is, I mean, he even says that she is uh, an attraction that he's never felt before, right? He'd much rather look at a mossy gravestone than, than the lady. Maybe she had a similar characteristic and had a similar uh, interaction. I don't know how that mechanism worked. Like, did the father invent all that? So it doesn't quite make sense in that sense. But on the other hand, the inf- the the sense of inf- you know global pandemic that's about to begin, and that yep. that our narrator saves him from, is directly shouted out to in this in this at least this version that I'm holding. Um, he says, "I've read Dracula." <laughs> <laughs> right and other books but mostly dracula and that's the, that's what the plan there is too right dracula's going to yep. take over the british empire and uh, turn everybody into vampire slaves which makes me think of anno dracula you've read anno dracula haven't you i read Jesse? the comic book uh one of the comic yeah. book adaptations so i'm familiar with the concept i think he's yeah he's making explicit the things that are showing up in the text yeah. of dracula yeah I've I've always liked that. It's like, well, what if Dracula did win? What would it look like? And well, yeah, it wouldn't be pleasant. But yeah, so so yeah, so clearly the story he's he's trying to save the world from yeah these these vampires are trapped on this barge, trapped by the running water. But when the water finally goes down, they're going to be free, and the world's gonna world's going to suffer, except for his heroic dynamite sacrifice. We haven't heard much from Mister Jim Moon. Are you still there? Yep, yep. I find it really interesting because this is one of the few vampire stories where the narrator is actually familiar with vampire fiction and knows what to do. Mm-hmm. Because normally um, it always exists in a world where no one has ever written a vampire story and no one knows about wooden stakes or running water or the rules. And I find very, for a story this early, it's interesting you have that sort of meta context. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's genre savvy. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting that it's kind of this story with its two versions is you know, almost two different subgenres. The narrated version, we have a full kind of pulp Robert E. Howard style ending with things blowing up and big attacks. Mm-hmm. Whereas the shorter version is um, a lot more Poe-like. It's that sort of melancholy and it's somber mm. and it, it's it's low key. It's emotional horror rather than sort of action horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see. I can see why Lovecraft liked it <laughs> so much. I mean, I wonder which version he read. Oh, he definitely read the uh, mm. uh, the the Weird Tales version. I'm pretty sure, mm. unless it was a because I think the first two publications were in Weird Tales, and they're mm. they're identical except for the art, which is. Well, I think it's like my version in the uh, paperback. I looked at the copyright notices and it claimed the text was from weird, the 1927 Weird Tales issue. It's not. Uh, that was the copyright. Yeah, yeah. somebody was very, it. very weird. Mm. Mm. It, but I think you can get a, there's a very strong echo of um, uh, the Hypnos and the Hound. Oh, uh, I didn't see that. Well, I think you've got, you've got this morbid narrator who likes hanging around graveyards right right of course um and similarly in hypnos that they you have 
you know, another pair of narrators who are kind of one is in this case, one is enthralled to another, which mm. is very like the canal. Um, and, and similarly, they, they, they both end up in, um, shall we say, sort of the night side of the city, you know, almost figuratively happen literally, you know, in a place of sort of, you know, poverty where, where the nice people don't go, where terrible things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see so many echoes of, um, of the canal in some of those Lovecraft stories, particularly the whole, um, the way the city at night becomes his dreamlike place. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in Fungi from Yugoth, uh, by Lovecraft, which he wrote, uh, December 1929 of the canal. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I'm convinced that that's the version we lost Wayne, but we'll try and get him back. Um, Oh, there you go. Um, I, I'm convinced that for, just from the publication history, that the only version that Lovecraft could possibly have read is is uh, the version from Weird Tales, the original with the dynamite, because the first publication is December 27, Weird Tales. Um, he he, uh, that issue also has an advertisement for the Call of Cthulhu coming in the next issue. Um, and then there's a reprint in 1935, and then the very next printing after that is 47. He's dead by then. So both versions are identical to the, this original dynamiting version. Um, somewhere along the line, maybe in the Avon Fantasy Reader version or the Sleeping Dead 30 Uncanny Tales, I'm not even convinced 100% that, that uh, Everell Worrell made the changes because um, she, she was alive long after but there's no I, I i don't understand the changes um maybe it was cut if it's shorter to fit in a another volume you know august derelith uh had a hand in the third publication maybe he he improved it i'm not sure um <clears throat> it seems to me i'm looking at the wiki source version now it seems to me it's shorter yeah it, it feels shorter um, just looking at the length, but I haven't, I actually hadn't, I, I just assumed it was identical because it said it was from Weird Tales and it's certainly not. It's interesting that most it's, people uh, haven't seen this before. If this is the first, you know, uh, original one, um, you, you were saying Mr. Jim Moon that it was reminds you of Poe also remind me a lot of that John Buchan story, um, uh, the Grove of Ashtaroth, yeah, which yes. has yes. dynamite, and he's doing a good thing, even though he's going to be bad. He's unhappy about it, and maybe people won't understand. Um, I was also thinking of Dagon. It's like you have narrated, like here I'm putting down my mm. testimony because I'm going to soon be dead. Right. And it's here's what happened to instead me. Instead of the window, it's the plunger. The plunger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, ah. I'm looking at the uh, wiki source page now, and uh, interestingly, there's uh, a notification on it from uh, whoever the powers that be are. Um, it says the source document of this text is not known. Right. Uh, so, in other words, they're not buying the Weird Tales Volume 10, Issue 6, 1927, either, evidently. Mm hmm. I wonder now if the uh, the source text is itself still in copyright. 
Um, the original, the one that I've got, this, this is version. out of copyright. It's not. What about this version? Yeah, it, there's no way to know until we find out where it was published, right? Um, it's possible. Yeah. It's possible that it, that version uh, on Wikisource is isn't. But um, I'll I'll look into that because I'm curious. I, I'm curious about the why the changes were made, and I haven't read that version either. So I'm like, maybe maybe it is better. Because I, I do like no, that. It's not. it's not better. Okay. Trust me. <laughs> I thought somebody said it was more poignant. <laughs> maybe that was no, a say, maybe that was a joke. I, that was that was me. I said it was uh, the the one that uh, where we're originally talking about is more poignant. <laughs> well, poignant, you know, pointy sword, you know, whatever. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> where did you get this wooden sword? See, that does sound like August Derelict. Now that I think about it, I mean, he's got a roadster. Why does he carry around a wooden sword? <laughs> you put away childish things at some point, right? Yeah. Um, Mr. Jim Moon. Well, the wooden sword strikes me as kind of, on one hand, he's read Dracula, and he knows that actually Dracula is decapitated with a Bowie knife in that. In the original novel, he's not actually staked with a wooden stake traditional style, although um, Lucy is. And I hear, I think the wooden sword is a fudge between the two. Mm. Kind of, okay, it's a sword and a stake. <laughs> We just we'll cover all the bases here. Uh, what weren't all of the fungi from Yagath composed over like uh, three months? That's the, where the canals to be found, right? Uh, well, no, it's a Lovecraft December, canal. January, yeah, yeah, December nineteen twenty nine to kind of early. Yeah, June, so it, it fits. Year nineteen thirty. Yeah, so and the version um, that Lovecraft. Uh, eventually gets published in, let me just type it in here, The Canal, first published in Weird Tales, December, oh, no, no, that's Everall Worlds Canal. Uh, January 38 shows up in Weird Tales, so after he's dead. But um, I've got that here. Do you do you have it handy, Mr. Mr. Jim? I've got it here. Please read it here. for us. Somewhere in dream, there is an evil place. Where tall, deserted buildings crowd along a deep, black, narrow channel, reeking strong of frightful things whence oily currents race. Lanes with old walls half meeting overhead wind off to streets one may or may not know, and feeble moonlight sheds a spectral glow over long rows of windows, dark and dead. There are no footfalls. And the one soft sound is of the oily water as it glides under stone bridges and along the sides of its deep flume to some vague ocean bound. No one lives to tell when that stream washed away its dream-lost region from the world of clay. And your version says clay, <laughs> C-L-A-Y? Yep. Huh. Mine's slightly different. It says day. Um, uh, and then it's none lives. Um, I, I've seen, I see that happen all the time in different publications, people tweaking the letters and stuff, uh, tweaking the words. Uh, am I wrong to say that oil doesn't show up in the river or the canal waters? I remember there is stuff floating in the waters and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I made the connection that maybe this is inspired by whirls. 
But I also see, like, what's missing is, you know, there's no vampire lady, which is typical for Lovecraft, right? He's not he, – he, he's much more interested in those buildings that are leaning against each other almost. He's much more architecture-based than he is uh, lady-based. Um, he's less Poe than he is uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wrighty. um but it does uh, are there oil because i i have a feeling that i looked for oil in the story oily waters and didn't find them before no i've done a text search on the page on the wiki source and there's no mention of oil on on the truncated version anyway i'm pretty sure it's not in the longer version either interesting Um, and yet it's an image that you would think of for a desert canal to be like pools of iridescent oils kind kind of like floating mm. like scum it, mm. at least at least at least when i was imagining this i mentally put the oil there even though it wasn't actually in the text because mm-hmm. i just expected it to be there uh i believe the canal is also the opening of um there is a uh adaptation done by uh, the of the lovecraft um uh forgetting the name of the artist uh, Corbin, uh, Richard Corbin did a adaptation of the, the canal, and it's radically different, of course, because he has to add characters, which they don't really have here. But we also get the sense in this this story um, that it is a, a mystery city in the same sense as the uh, there's a Lovecraft story, the music of Eric Zahn, where there's a mist, you know, a street that disappears and a whole neighborhood that he can't find again um yeah it, it, it's that's ha- in paris yeah that's mm. in paris and i i'm obviously conflating this the these mystery cities this the city that has no name the lady who has no name and uh, even the narrator only gets one reference to his name morton which is a great name for a guy who loves death <laughs> <laughs> death town <laughs> um he uh he's he's got a um a, uh, that is Lovecraft has a lot of stories actually or poems that have this imagery of a river or a canal or a stream that leads to an ocean that is unknown. Um, thinking of there's a, uh, an amazing, amazing vignette uh, prose poem called uh, What the Moon Brings. Have you read that, everybody? Oh yes, yes. I love that story. Mister mm-hmm. Mister uh, Wayne June, have you read that? Um, I know I've seen the title, uh, so I know it exists. I don't remember reading it though. It's a it's, dream. It's really short. It is it's super really short. Good. It's super good. Um, I hate the moon. I am afraid of it. But when it shines on certain scenes familiar and loved, it makes them sometimes unfamiliar and hideous. Yeah, and then mm. what happens is, well, yeah, you can pra- you can practically read it here. It's um, um, there's another one uh that's about a lake that um, it's again a dream sort of story. So he 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 goes goes to the lake or somebody's near the lake, and the waters are draining away, just like the canal in this story, right? Um, and what's revealed under is like 
in my interpretation, it's like the corpse of a god. <laughs> Something like it's so hideous. It's a, it's a city. It's um it's a the corpse of a god, and it's so uh, maybe it's like a tarn. You know, it's like it's mm-hmm. it's Ooh, so, there's a nice word. Oh yeah, it's so um brutal that uh you you walk away like oh I can't look at it just like he can't look at it. Um, and we get that in here when he's going to throw himself in the, oh, maybe it is there, right in the end. The oily, does he say the oily waters of the, there it is, I think it is. Um, right at the end, doesn't he say, I'm going to throw myself into the mud? And then at last, in the slime beneath the unmoving waters of the canal, I shall find peace. No, just slime, not no, oil. N- no, just slime. no oil. No oil. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Lovecraft uses that trope uh, several times. Uh, in Dagon, uh, it's mm. in there too. You know, the guy w- wakes up in a lifeboat, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, he was in the ocean, but when he wakes up, he's he's sort of. Uh, uh, the ocean has more or less disappeared and he's, you know, just beached on a slimy, muddy expanse, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. th- doesn't he also use that, uh, that imagery in, uh, trying to think, uh, crawling chaos. Yeah. Uh, there's a peninsula there that's being eaten away. It, it's definitely yeah. an image from dream, right? So he's, I, he's, it's almost like he read the canal, the canal by ever Worrell and became, uh, incorporated into his horror, into his horror nightmares. Uh, and yeah. I haven't read the night ocean. What's the story on that? That's by, uh, uh, Lovecraft and Barlow. That mm. I've got, I, I've got a, it's public domain as well, but I haven't read it. Um, let's see how it opens. I went to Elliston Beach, not only for the pleasures of the sun and ocean, but to rest a weary mind. Since I knew no person in the little town which thrives on summer vacationists and presents only blank windows during most of the year, there seemed no likelihood that I might be disturbed. This pleased me, for I did not wish to see anything but the expanse of pounding surf and the beach lying before my temporary home. So that that does sound like... Uh, it could be from the canal as well with the with the campers, right? Sure. Wow. My long work on yeah. the summer was completed when I left the city, and the large mural design produced by it had been entered in the contest. Okay, he's working in some sort of uh, city office, maybe. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. There's a whole hidden history uh, behind the story. Of course, there's also... Um, uh, I, t- I don't know what prompted me to uh, think about it, but this is probably straight out of the same psychology that's working with uh, Worrell and Poe and uh, Lovecraft. But uh, there's The Lake by Poe. Poe is explicitly called out oh, in, yes, yeah. in this one. And The Lake is... It's, I don't think it's justifiable to say it's... Um, his best poem, but it's one of my favorites of his. Um, you guys know this poem, uh, Paul? The, the Lake by Poe? Yeah. I've got it here. 
it's 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 just delight. It's the most wondrous delight. This poem, and it it, it could have inspired I, I, rural. I'll, I will read it. Please because, do. Because you know. Oh, which version are you reading though? Um. <laughs> Uh, seriously, I, it makes a difference. I I, I noted the, the one that the one starts that, in Spring of Youth. Uh, that, yeah, see, so um, that's not as good. I, I've got a copy here that's even better. I'll send you the link. Um, so uh, people make changes. Um, well, mind you, people, here's people here's the 1827 the version. Maybe that's even better. Um, this is from Tamer Lane uh, and other poems, 1827. So. Exactly uh, 100 years. Yeah, this is the original. And it, right. I think it's much better. I think it's much better than, than the one that you'll find on poetry.org or whatever oh, Okay. The lake. In youth's spring, it was my lot to haunt of the wide earth a spot. The which I could not love the lens, so lovely was the lonely, loneliness. Of a wide lake with black wrapped bound and the tall pines that towered around but when the night had thrown her pall upon that spot as upon all and the wood would pass me by wind would pass me by and its stilly mellow die my infant spirit would awake to the terror of the lone lake yet that terror was not fright but a tremulous delight and a feeling undefined springing from a darkened mind death was in that poisoned wave and its gulf a fitting grave for him who thence could solace bring to his dark imagining, whose wilding thought could even make an Eden of that dim lake. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's it, it's weird for Poe. Um, it, it it it's it's almost uh, it's it's almost not uh, not dark enough to be Poe until <laughs> until the last quarter of mm. it. You know. And, and he's uh, he's celebrating the the loveliness of it and all that business, mm. and um, uh, then the loveliness turns to uh, death was in that poisoned wave, um, and it's uh, it's called a fitting grave, and uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's a, it's an amazing poem because the uh, place I read it first was in a children's book of. Lovecraft, uh, not Lovecraft, Pose. It was a, a, a Pose poems for children, and they were straight from wow. Poe, which is so weird, right? What? Wait. I know it's so cool because it has beautiful, gorgeous illustrations. I, I, I actually cut up the book and put it on my wall in my classroom. Well, they're, they're never, so. never too young to learn morbidity. That's Dude, what I always. Uh, you know, <laughs> when you read Annabelle Lee to children, they love it, and then. When you read it to teenagers, you, you can explain what's going on. That is a necrophilia story as strong as The Love Dead, which we, you all need to read because it's, <laughs> it is not fast becoming my, my favorite Lovecraft story, which is crazy because nobody ever talks about that one. But, um, it's so funny. Anyways, in this, in this, uh, the framing for this poem, they said, um, that, and the, the picture for this, poem the lake shows a uh a, a ghostly couple hovering over a lake with black rocks around and pines above right and once once that key insight that there actually are possibly two ghosts in this story rather than one it makes the story far more interesting um 
and 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 then you listen to the lot. This is just the brilliance of Poe. In youth, spring it was my lot. Now, lot means both place, right, and also uh, fate. To haunt of the wide earth a spot, the which I could not love the less. We've all heard that phrase. I I I I could care less. <laughs> Which, yep. <laughs> which is kind of a passive-aggressive way, way of saying, I don't care. But listen to it. The witch, I could not love the less. And if you're looking at it, it's W-H-I-C-H. But when you hear it, the witch, W-I-T-C-H, it's almost like he's under a spell. And then mm-hmm. the next line proves it. Because he says, so lovely was the loneliness, right? <laughs> Lovely loneliness of a wild lake. And that wildness comes back right at the end with uh, a wild thought, right? Bewildering, making you crazy. Lake with black rock bound. And bound has this amazing, uh, this is why I like Lampman so much, Archibald Lampman. It has this amazing multivalence going on where it doesn't mean only one thing. It means not only two things, you know, uh, ambivalence, but or bivalence. Here it's multivalent because it's got bound means tied up, right? Second, it means springing, like uh, b- jumping, and that goes right back to the first line in youth spring. And then it has the third, which is the boundary, which is probably the main meaning here of a wild lake with black rock bound and the tall pines that towered around. But when the knight had thrown her pall, uh, in some later editions they capitalized knight, upon that spot as upon all, and the wind would pass me by in its stilly melody. You have to pronounce it right, Paul. It's not yeah. melody, melody, it's melody. And melody. everyone stumbles over that because they're supposed to, right? He's saying <laughs> this is a suicide note. My infant spirit would awake. And of course, what does he mean, infant spirit? Spirit's a ghost. But you go right back up to the beginning. In youth's spring, spring of youth would be his youngest young, right? My infant spirit would awake to the terror of that lone lake. Yet that terror was not fright, but a tremulous delight. Again, going back to lovely loneliness, delightful tremor. And a feeling undefined. Hmm. Tell me more. Springing from a darkened mind. Death was in that poisoned wave. It's like, water doesn't poison you. Unless you go get it in your lungs. And in that gulf, and in its gulf, a fitting grave for him who thence could soulless spring. S-O-L-A-C-E. Homophone with S-O-U-L-L-E-S-S. Right? Without soul. To his dark imagining, whose wildering thought could even make an Eden of that dim lake. And Eden has a, a woman and a man. So it is a very Poe poem. Uh, I'm sure Lovecraft would read it with, uh, with a, um, no, he just like, he, he liked, uh, he wanted to throw himself in the river because of the horror of existence. And it's a nice place to do it. But, <laughs> but I just think it's, it's, it's so amazing that, um, when you think about the tremulousness that he says, a tremulous delight, it was the terror was not fright. As he's walking into the lake 
or maybe swimming out deep into the lake, and the lake is cold, unlike in the canal where the water is supposed to be warm. Swimming out into the lake, and he's like, I'm getting tired. I'm getting cold. I'm shaking. It's okay. That's not, that's not fright. That's not the cold. That's excitement. Wow. <laughs> what an amazing really cool. suicide note to give to kids to read. I mean, come on. <laughs> I love it. <coughs> Did I destroy this show? Is it over? No, you, you you didn't kill you didn't kill the sh- you didn't kill the show. Okay, it's just, I kill the episode. Kind of like, I'm just pitching open mouth to students, all going. It's why it's why I'm a popular teacher, right? Teaching the kids all, all the virtues of suicide. <laughs> Luckily, this is not a podcast that can be censored by somebody else, right? They, they might get upset. Do you ever have like a parent teacher meeting so you discuss <laughs> any yeah. of this curriculum? Uh, yeah, but uh, the thing is, is you know the parents just want to make sure I know what I'm doing and that the kids benefit. So they don't they don't like review them. They don't actually read the materials, right? I just present the materials and say this is what we're going to work on. And then <laughs> I don't. I, I, it seems to. It, I've never had anybody upset, so it seems to work. Makes the kids excited too. Makes me excited. I can't believe how amazing this stuff is. When I was reading, you had any had any, uh, had any suicides yet? <laughs> oh, not yet. But we okay. can hope, right? Just we can second. hope we inspire somebody. I think I think it does the opposite, right? When you talk about death a lot, it makes you uh, less less likely to uh, you know. It's keeping things in the open rather than hiding things away. <laughs> Seriously, I'm serious about this. I, yeah, uh, that's a good way to think of it. You know, you, you don't, uh, yeah, you say this is sometimes people go nuts. You can, t- if you start saying it, it was a tremulous delight, then, then you know you need to talk to a doctor or somebody. <laughs> um, I, I should read also, I think, um, if anybody who didn't, doesn't follow my Twitter, <laughs> which is pretty much everybody, um, in 1953, May 1953 issue of Weird Tales, uh, Everell Worrell wrote a letter um, to Weird Tales um, saying how much she enjoyed uh, Lovecraft's writing. Um, let's see if I can get this to come up here. All right, here we go. Yeah, this is this is wonderful. Um, Okay, page 94. Yes, here we go. Um, First, I want to compliment you on a wonderful number. That is issue of Weird Tales. I'd like to see so much new material. I like to see so much new material with a wonderful reprint and certainly the Supreme Witch. That's the name of the story. Uh, Then the stories. Then the stories. This is a high showing of stories and that are that are not in, not only interesting, but that are also really writing, really, really literature. Slime is terrific. <laughs> I believe I've always wanted to read something cosmic and spatial about those dark ocean depth potentials. Night Court is well, for one thing, it is Mary Elizabeth Councilman, and that is saying enough. The Raft achieves 
atmosphere in its stark, simple graphic narration. Uh, uh, sorry, it's very hard to read this, very small. Um, in the stark, simple graphical narration of the famous Wandry novel, The Egyptian. I can't quite read that. A book I simply ate up. I greatly liked the dream merchant. I liked the talkie dolls and enjoyed the rest too. And I liked the lack of formula and the variety. And then she says, Transitionally to my next remarks, I like Lovecraft, but I've been interested in Lovecraft controversy because I somewhat agree with his detractors. I found Joseph C. Wenk of Toronto particularly literate in his assessment. He's done some other reading, and he knows something of literary points, doesn't he? When my husband was living, we used to use some of the great Lovecraft vocabulary around the house rather freely. If something particularly smelly boiled over in the kitchen, we might refer to it as a quote-unquote foul mephitic vapor. <laughs> and when the baby howled, we might invite one another to do something about the quote horrific ululations. <laughs> I, I kind of think I know what Wenk meant when he said it wasn't so much what Lovecraft did as how he did it. And she was living in Washington, D.C. Uh, she was apparently a civil servant at that time. Um, or had just retired. That's funny. She's, she's obviously a hilarious person. Apparently she was a really nice mom, too, because... Uh, her, one of her kids uh, wrote a biography about her and saying saying how what a good mom she was. So you can be uh, a horrible uh, monster loving graveyard sniffing <laughs> weirdo um, <laughs> and also be a good mom and probably not commit suicide. These are not mutual exclusive. That's right. Well, that gives me hope. That gives that <laughs> that gives me. Something to shoot for. <laughs> when you become a mom, you'll be all right. I know. <laughs> all right, I wrecked the show. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, you didn't. You didn't. <laughs> well, that was really good. I, I swear, you guys really need to read The Love Dead. You're going to love it. It is so unbelievably funny. Because it, it's you so done, extreme. Have you, have, you done, have, have you done a show on it yet? No, no. I'm waiting for Wayne to uh, put it out as a uh, podcast. Audio? And, yeah. I see. And then uh, we can do a show on it. Because it is, it is so, it's such a delight to read. It's so funny. And it's it's so extreme that um, that you think it's not, it's not going to show you. It's just going to elude to it, you know. And it doesn't. <laughs> it says, there's a guy. He's lying on the he's lying on the corpse board with another body, and and it, oh, he's a serial killer too. And oh, it's so good. <laughs> it oh, literally good. could be a great TV show. Have you guys ever seen that uh, movie Kissed? It was filmed in Vancouver. My name being oh. Sutton. Oh yes, yes. A female mortician. Yes. Yeah. No, I've not seen. It's Kissed. 1996. Um, Lynn uh, based on a short story uh, which I haven't read called We So Seldom Look on Love um, and it's about a lady mortician who is a uh, necrophiliac okay <laughs> it's actually quite it's quite tasteful <laughs> yeah still quite not safe for work though I'd say <laughs> yeah, but yeah tasteful, I would don't, agree. don't stream at work got it what's funny though is, is that in, in the filming, they have to get actors to play the corpses, right? 
And so it's like, um, that's interesting because they have to hold real still as this lady like leans over them and they're nude. So I don't, I don't know how they did it, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's a very low budget film for, you know, it's a Canadian movie. It's not a blockbuster or anything like that, but I, th- I thought it was quite good at the time. I don't remember, uh, I, I don't think I've rewatched it, but. Um, I'll probably need to read the, uh, if we do a, do a lo- uh, Love Dead show, we'll need to, uh, track that down. And I, the other thing that's amazing is there is a letter, and I've lost it, but there was a letter to Weird Tales from a 13 year old girl. Um, it is a story in just the letters column. Sometimes this happened, like people would write poems and they'd only get published in the letters column rather than anywhere else. So it doesn't quite show up on the, uh, table of contents right but it's a published story in weird tales and the this one was from a 13 year old girl who was a big fan of the of the the magazine and it's it's essentially the story of kissed it's about a mortician who works in the in the uh the uh mortuary and is in love with the corpses and it's like what the hell this i i get the sense that this is an actual thing that there are actually people like that, which is freaky deaky. Uh, <laughs> like, Everybody needs some body to. Oh work. no! No, we're doing boom. Yes, I went with that. Well, you went there. I thought I thought uh, the necrophilia was bad. Now the puns, but necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.